0: Join us for part two of our dialogue with Dr. Chris Baish, the philosopher and theologian who took 73 high dose LSD sessions and found himself entering into realms of consciousness and rediscovering some of the great truths of humankind. He describes the way in which identity enlarges from the personal to the transpersonal to the cosmic, how death and rebirth recur multiple times, each death opening further possibilities and potentials, and points us further into what a human being can be, truly the farther reaches of human nature.
1: Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution.
0: Chris, can you draw a distinction there between the individuality and separation? Let me see if I'm understanding. Individuality gives a sense of the recognition of, I can't come up with another word than being individual. (laughs) But separation usually is, but the individual can be, there can be a sense of individuality within the recognition of one's innate connection with dependence on an ultimate unity with the all or the pure consciousness. Is Mm -hmm. that how you would distinguish from separation where there is a forgetting of the connection to the greater whole?
2: Yeah. I think when Buddhism teaches, Shunyata, and when it teaches anatta, no self, they are not, they're basically defining a type of self experience where we experience ourselves cut off from other selves. We experience ourselves as cut off and away from the universe itself. When that self dies, one experiences an individuality which is porous. To others, and that is, we live in compassion and we experience an individuality which is in communion with surrounding layers and layers of consciousness, so that there is a spiritual openness and a, an openness of compassion to other beings. We are still an individual, but we are an individual that's situated within the boundaryless condition. Uh-huh.
0: And it's sounds as though, it may take me a little moment to unravel this, but it sounds as though you're saying there's a value in that individuality. And I'm reminded of Ramakrishna, the great Indian mystic who was just extraordinarily fluid in his ability to roam through different realizations and states. Mm -hmm. And he described being lost in unity, but then longing for separation so that he could worship and relate to the mother. (laughs) So there were both sides there, and I hear something similar here. There are some traditions you pointed to Advaita Vedanta, for example, where the the self is regarded as an illusion, the fundamental reality is our inseparability, or is rather the non-duality of existence. And yet it sounds like you're pointing to out of your own. And here's the beauty of it. It came out of your own experience. Mm -hmm. You were aware of all these traditions, these ontologies, cosmologies, metaphysics. And yet out of your own experience, it feels like you came to the sense that there is a beauty and perfection in the individuality in and of itself. Is that correct?
2: It is. And let me frame it this way. Before time and space existed, before the physical universe existed, when everything was in the pure, fertile void condition, when whatever you want to call the absolute made a choice to manifest physical existence, the physical universe is the only thing strong enough, I think, to shatter the oneness of the absolute into pieces that then can become individually awakened to what it is within the body of the divine. So the great gift of the physical universe or one of the great gifts of the physical universe is literally the density that causes the oneness of the divine to shatter into pieces so that those pieces can become operational as divine within the body of the divine. And in that context, individuality, I think is one of the great gifts of creation. It's one of the great gifts of the universe. And I don't think the creator wants to destroy that individuality after billions and billions of years of getting us to this point, Finally, when we wake up and become conscious and we can drop our conscious down to source and understand and identify that part of us, which is universal, which is oneness with all the universal, with what is alive, I don't think the intention is then to simply say, okay, let's destroy that. I think we're growing. And I think we're going to be growing for billions and billions and billions of years more. We are just getting started in this process of waking up to the vast expanse of existence. And yet we're waking up in a way in which we become lovers of it. We become servants of it. We become a fractal embodiment of it. All these different metaphors for describing this mystery of the dance. Let me just
1: say that I've seen the same thing and you expressed it much more eloquently. And and I feel like I'm a yellow belt. You know, I'm talking to a... 10th dawn or something like that. But yeah, that somehow in the all, the preciousness of the individual is that infinitely more precious at the same time. It's a yes and, it's this and that, and it's working itself out. That's come through very clearly for me at times. And I had to rethink a lot of my mm-hmm. ideas about psychology, given that it feels deeply human at a deep level. And also, let me say what you were describing is your experience that at some point, Self-awakens, okay, dink. That just opens, that's just, Jesus said a man must be born again. Well, what happens when you're born? You're just a little helpless infant. You're not good for anything that's being precious. That's the beginning of the journey. And then it seems that you're talking about a Christ-like or a Bodhisattva responsibility at a certain point. We have to take on the responsibility, not just for our own awakening, and our own mistakes and our own suffering, but for, for the all for the collective. And that adds, I guess the word is a nobility to the task that otherwise would just be very narcissistic, if you will, and just very, you know, chasing your tail. But, but that, that understanding That quality that you express at a deep, deep level is, I think, is essential. And because we have the archetype of Jesus, of of a human being, boom, an individual who was crucified and, and murdered in this most horrible way, almost imaginable, who then goes down into the underworld and blah, blah, but comes back, still him, barely recognizable. Some of his disciples didn't, but at some level, a transformed level that has kept the rest of us running in his you know, his path for a couple of thousand years. But that's a story of the individual that's contained within our Western treasure chest of wisdom stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is a story of divine incarnation come to fruition. And I think that story has archetypal ramifications that are much larger than the Christology that was developed to to interpret it, which ended up making Jesus into a unique being. When really he's a prototype.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Nice. Yeah, and that that seems to be a major division that occurs in each of the great religions, and probably many others as well, and perhaps reflecting different. Developmental psychological developmental st- stages on the people who make the interpretation. The founder is either elevated to unique status, which the rest of us can only approximate at best, or is recognized as an exemplar and, as you called it, prototype of the capacities and potentials latent within us. Seems a very important distinction. You point to there.
2: Yeah, and I, and I want to mention that, as you said, John. When you begin to experientially tap into that in us which is universal, then eventually all aspects of your life heaves to to come in alignment with that. And that's why love is, you know, deep, not eros, but agape, love, and compassion, social justice, fairness mm-hmm. naturally arises as one's spiritual practice deepens because you have discovered this hybrid nature within yourself. You are individually awake and awake to a universal bond, a universal level of reality that becomes an expression simply of your true nature. It's just spontaneous. And I also want to mention that I don't think you have, you certainly don't have to go where I went, in order to spiritually awaken, even if you wanted to use psychedelics or spiritual awakening, to me, there's three uses that I'd separate using of psychedelics for healing, mm-hmm. using of psychedelics to spiritually awakening, and then a third, which is what my journey became, a cosmological exploration. If I wanted to use psychedelics for simply spiritual awakening, I would recommend a protocol working with very low doses because it's about dissolving the ego and you got to get after where the ego lives in the world and that's closer to time space realities you do not need to shatter time to become spiritually awakened you don't need to enter archetypal reality you don't need to go back to the beginning of the universe to become genuinely enthusiastically spiritually awakened what i started kind of Aiming at spiritual awakening, but the, the method was so powerful it sh- it shoved me in a way past that or through that into a deeper into a different agenda. And I'm entirely sympathetic to spiritual teachers who would say, you know, your time would be better spent cultivating an abiding, the abiding presence of, of the transparent condition than learning these, going on this quest to learn how the universe is put together in these different levels. And I understand that critique. And and I, I share it to a degree myself. I wonder sometimes whether my time would have been better spent focusing more on the enlightenment side of the things than the cosmic exploration side. But what happened in my work is that it pushed deeper into the cosmological exploration side.
1: Well, you said you were a philosopher, yeah. And you went with the a philosopher's quest into this journey. Exactly what you said, and it's exactly what you did. So there's no flip-flopping there.
0: And you did it with a very specific aspiration and intention, Chris. I recall that you said before each session, you would effect, you would effectively offer yourself as an instrument for the highest good of all very similar to the bodhisattva aspiration or even reminded me of jesus statement not my will but thine it really felt like a unrestricted offering of yourself as an instrument for acquiring whatever wisdom was opened to you or you were gifted or graced with in order to be an instrument of transmission to others and it feels like your prayer was answered very clearly. And you talked about, well, you know, it could have been as valuable to to just do spiritual practice and perhaps perhaps that's true and it's kind of like let a thousand spiritual flowers bloom you ca- you gave us a new kind of flower and we are benefiting from it <laughs> and who knows how many people other other people will benefit from it so wonderful that you did what you did and beautiful that you did it with that aspiration and prayer it feels like your prayer Thank was God. answered
1: yeah uh, Chris, how do you, what do you do these days? I mean, to keep yourself, man, you went on the journey, just remarkable. And you came back and you mentioned yeah. uh, that you're teaching. Do you have a way of staying awake to everything that you were gifted, everything that you were shown? Or do you find in the transmission and the teaching that that's what keeps you still Chris base in this yeah. limited reality, but at the same time, in touch with and transmitting what you learned on the other side, if you
2: will. You know, there's a question I ask in the book, what is the value of true but temporary knowledge? And I don't doubt that any of the experience that I had on my journeys was true. And I also know it was temporary. It I could I could I cannot live in those places that the places where I've been. I can't. The idea of bringing them back and integrating them as a stable state—that it may be true for certain levels of experience, but some of the deeper experiences are not possible. At least, not in not in my present level of psychospiritual development. I, mean, I know that there are great beings who can. Who are masters of these domains and always they are my guiding light. But I know that Chris's abilities cannot stabilize these states of consciousness in my present life. I use those experiences in order to I use them in my meditation practice, I use them in my Vajrayana practice, they are the Samaya Sattva, that opens me to the Janana Sattva, so they are the being of practice It opens me to the being of reality of these things. But I also have a certain, a lot of my time these days is spent grounding, just being grounded, staying grounded living in touch with the earth because I spent so many years out in the far reaches of the cosmos that it's good to be in touch with the earth and grounding on the earth. But most of all, I'm a teacher. I mean, I, I just, I love to find things and to share them. And during all the years when I was doing this work, I could not really share them. I really could not share them directly in my classes Now, the first time I shared them was in Dark Night, Early Dawn, where I addressed experiences that had come up in the first half of my journey, up to about the halfway point. In LSD and the Mind of the Universe, or what I prefer to call it, the name that it had for me in all the years I wrote it, Diamonds from Heaven, I shared the whole extent of the journey. But to me, the most important part of it all is the chapter on the birth of the future human and the final vision. Because the work was so little focused on me and so much focused on the human family, it just became natural that, and I guess this is by some larger cosmic design, the story that kept being pounded into me, it kept being shown over and over again. Was the human story, where humanity is in its evolution, what we are coming to, the pivot point that we are coming into in history, the absolute shift which is taking place at an archetypal level, really at the plate tectonics of the collective psyche, that we're coming to a tipping point. A tipping point that will change the condition of the human psyche at the collective level, not just an aggregate number of individuals, but there is a shift taking place underneath us at the collective psychic level that is going to mark a before and after in human history. This was shown me again and again. And then years later, I was dissolved into the human species. I mean, I just dissolved without remainder and then was taken into the death and rebirth of humanity. Not in any details, not given details of when exactly when, where, or how, but that humanity was going to go through an epic, an era when it would completely lose control. All the assumptions of life were going to be stripped away. We were going to go through a crushing ordeal as a species, an ordeal that would be so terrible for a time, we would think that this is the end. We're going extinct as a species on this planet. But in my visionary experience, we come through this, we survive, and we are absolutely changed in the process. When we come through this crisis, this long crisis, We have reached something inside ourselves. We have cracked open our heart. We have cracked open our mind. The humanity that emerges from the historical period is a changed humanity. It is a deeper humanity. It is a more open and a more mature humanity. One of the ways putting together different things from my sessions, I've come to believe that this crisis that we're coming through with a global systems crisis driven by a series of ecological crises, just tremendous converging forces that we are increasingly aware of these days. But this is a crisis of consciousness. We literally cannot afford to try to run this planet any longer from the egoic level of consciousness. The ego is separated and it leads to a divided world. And I think what's happening is The soul is coming forward in history. I mentioned the diamond soul. I think we are literally growing up into our full soul being and that we are coming to a point where when we incarnate, we will never be tempted to identify just with this body, but we will know ourselves to be a hundred thousand year old being. And we will know that the planet that we are leaving is the planet that we will return to. We know we have these deep karmic connections with everyone around us, and we know that we are all embedded in the oneness of the divine consciousness. This is the magnitude of the transition that we're going through. And I think that all of us in all of our spiritual practices are contributing to this transition. And I think it's why so many people are having such very, very intense yogic practices and meditational practices and past life therapy practices because this is tremendous unloading which is taking place which is part of a collective healing which is making way for this awakening of something new in history
1: wow that was quite a download Mr. (laughs) Base.
0: did I say Dr. Base? Chris you gave a Beautiful description of one of the more well, there's so many profound openings and insights you had, but you did have a profound recognition of the possible future ahead of us as a human species, which you just summarized briefly. And your insights are resonant with the sense that seems to be growing among many people that we are coming to a time of extraordinary crisis and opportunity. I think of that combination being very well expressed, perhaps best expressed by a mutual friend of ours, Dwayne Elgin, whose many books on the transition we as a as a species are facing really point to our current time as a bottleneck in which there is we really may face. A if not civilizational collapse at worse than a loss of a lot of our current capacities as a species and the death of many, many people. Yet also he points to the possibility of this being could be, if we bring enough awareness, aspiration, pure-heartedness to the process, it could be a kind of collective rebirth. I'd love to hear you speak more about how the vision that seems to be emerging among a number of people with this deep concern about our future meshes with the insights you were given.
2: Yeah. Nguyen is a real brother in all of this, and I've been deeply and shaped or informed as I've digested my own experiences by his methodical combing through all the ecological data and the social data, looking at the converging forces in history through several of his books (laughs) I should only speak out of my visionary experience because I have a certain familiarity secondhand through authors like Dwayne and, and other writers of our time in history. But my sense of this is really informed primarily by my visionary experience. And so let me stay just there. And again, for me, these visions took place going back to 1990 through 1995-96. So I was very ecologically uninformed 25 years ago when these took place. I was not aware of what's happening culturally and historically. When I first had the experience of the death and rebirth of humanity, it took me about a year to recover from that experience. And I felt like I was as I say in the book, I felt like I was walking around Hiroshima a week before the bomb was to be dropped, knowing what was coming with profound compassion and deep respect for all human beings on the planet, knowing that they had all volunteered to participate in this grand exercise. And at a deep soul level, that they knew what was coming, even though at an egoic level, they did not know what was coming. It took me a year and a lot of work to stabilize. And ever since that time through the early 90s, I've held this, this knowing in my body. I mean, it literally lives in my body what's happening. And then as i become more informed by the historians and by the ecologist and the environmentalist, and we really begin to see get a better hand a grip on global climate change and whatnot it seems to mesh very well with what the inner experience is with the variance that there are some people who are serious students of the data who believe that we're not going to make it the data is just so strong that we've already had our shot and even though we're living on borrowed time and we will not make it through this transition we are essentially extinct already And all I can say is that in my experience, that's not what happens. It's not because the crunch that's coming is not as bad as we think it's going to be. It's going to bring us to our collective knees. It's going to be worse than we are now even envisioning. It's going to to just break us down completely.
0: That's a very painful and probably very realistic vision it sounds like and at least from what i understand of the data and we
2: come through we come through we,
0: we come through come,
2: we don't come through but a new we is born i believe that these historical pressures that are building are literally a birth they're truly giving birth to the future human but then the question is well what will this future human look like what is actually being born in history What do we mean? Is this just more of an an analogy or some, what do we mean when we say it's a birth? And the way I understand this, I go back and I, I look at it through reincarnational lens. I mean, you know that I believe that reincarnation is a empirically demonstrated fact of life. Ian Stevenson and other scholars have just demonstrated that reincarnation is true. My first book on life cycles was about reincarnation. When I look at the universe, I see our planet pulsing in and out of time and space, uh, reincarnating beings. I see us century by century, millennia by millennia, beings reincarnating time and time again. In giving birth, gestation is long, labor and birth is short and intense. I think the human family has been gestating the future human for hundreds of thousands of years. We have been gestating the future in the dynamics of reincarnation. The labor that is taking place, I think, is a short, intense, convulsive period. But what we are giving birth to is already foreshadowed once we understand the dynamics of reincarnation. What is coming forward, I think, truly is the consciousness which holds all of our reincarnational experience as a simultaneous present. This is a consciousness that we all contact if everything goes well, when we die. When we're born, we're contracted to small ego. When we die, we return to the soul. When we're born, we contract into another ego. When we die, we return to the soul that holds all of our memories, not fragmented, but integrated as a single being. If we keep this up over and over, sooner or later, the soul awakens inside human incarnation. And I think that's the being that's being born in this historical crisis. Souls will live on this planet differently than egos mm-hmm. live on this planet. Mm-hmm. I think all the great spiritual leaders of the axial age we all foreshadowing, We're giving us teachings that were helping bring this about. They were all teaching us to think deep, to look deep, to feel deep, and to allow the needs of others to become superordinate to our own individual needs, but not canceling out. They were They were inviting us to live old, to live wide. And I think now, Just as we are trying to become one planet, ecologically, politically, the world citizen is emerging. That is being matched by something that's taking place inside us. So as the world is trying to become one, we are trying to become one soul integrated within ourselves. And I think we're going to make it. My experience, at least, my visionary experience is, while nothing is decided, nothing is predetermined, My experience is that we make it. But this is not the end of the story, of course. This is simply the next stage of human evolution. Human evolution is going to continue as long as the universe is alive. So whatever we're doing now, it will be superseded eventually by yet another stage in our development, in our spiritual development. But this is a particularly important stage right now.
0: And Chris, you in one sentence, I think you elucidated a very important point, a kind of pivot point for this possible rebirth of the human species. You said, nothing is predestined. it's up to us. So that's a big statement.
2: Yeah. If everything were predestined, there would be no <laughs> point to incarnating, right? Because if everything had to be the way it's got to be, then we wouldn't be learning. And if we're not learning, there would be no adventure here. Mm -hmm. So it is open-ended. We could lose the planet. We could lose this opportunity. It's going to require our very, very best and our very deepest in order to come through this changed and built better.
0: So from that perspective, then your vision may not be one of, this is the way it's going to be, but rather here is the possibility to which we can open ourselves.
2: You know, yes, and I have to acknowledge that. I think this has happened. I think there are some times when people who nearly die, part of their life review, they have a life preview, and sometimes they see of the future, which does come true. And sometimes they see a future which they can change. And I talk about this in the book, Ken Ring's work heading toward Omega. And so if they're seeing a future that they can change, they're seeing a conditional future, not an absolute preset future. So I think what you're saying is true that what I'm seeing is a possible future, maybe even a probable future, but a possible future that we still have to enact. So I say yes to that. And I have to add a postscript some of my experiences have taken me so far into the future, into what I call deep time, not eternity, but into time, but a different modality of time, have taken me into deep time and have given me an experience of this historical transition that humanity is making, not as a future event, but as a past event as something that we have accomplished. So from that perspective, from that deep cosmological perspective, if I were speaking from that voice, I would say we will make this transition. Nature knows what it's doing. Nature has not brought us here unprepared, The genius of the universe that we see in DNA and galaxies, the genius that saturates every piece of the universe knows what it's doing when it brings us to this particular critical turning point. We will make it. We will become more than we have ever been before.
0: May it be so. And from my own perspective, which is uh, not having had your visions agnostic about the whether we'll make it or not, it seems like whatever perspective we hold, the only thing to do with our lives is to do what you did to offer them in the service of human well-being and survival. Is yes. that congruent with your
2: Absolutely. It's going to take all of our very, very best efforts to move forward and to move forward deeply and with a deep heart, with an open mind. Absolutely. All all hands on deck.
1: Chris, I get a feeling from you as a man who's heeded the calls in his life and you became educated and you got all that part squared away in your life so that later on you'd be in a position, much better position to share what you were called again to learn. And you had the courage to keep it up. My God, that is a miracle in itself over those 73 journeys, and that you're also at peace with yourself, because now you're you're giving back this vision. You did this work, and the work continues in the sharing of it. That's a pretty good place to be.
2: Yes, it is a good place to be. It's always a good place to be when one comes to a point in one's life where one feels that one has done what was asked to be done. Mm -hmm. Then the rest is gravy, Now I'm in the situation, when I finished writing the book, I knew that I could die at peace. that, That was the closure of the project. Now I'm in a new phase where I'm trying to figure out how to make what I did useful to other people. How can I serve other people carrying the knowledge or the memories that I have? How can I make it useful to people? And I'm still figuring that out. I'm still trying to figure out how I can be useful to other people who are on their own spiritual path, on their own intellectual path, who are doing things I can't imagine doing, wonderful things. How can I be useful to them to support them in their process as we enter this time in history?
0: And it sounds like that's a question that's really been with you and challenging you. And I want to put it in a context. It seems like there are two different kinds of questions. There are knowledge questions. Is it raining outside? Look outside? No. End of question. There are wisdom questions, which more, seem more like cons. They're questions you can ask repeatedly and each time you do. They take you deeper into the question, deeper into yourself, deeper into life. And sounds like this is your wisdom question or your as sometimes called your sacred question, is now to the forefront in your life.
2: It is. And I know that when I have the opportunity to be with like-minded spirits, like-minded beings, and we talk about these things, I know that something happens inside me that my shell is pretty thin anyway, but something happens and I get porous. And when I get porous, a larger knowing flows through me, works with me. I become irrelevant, but the teaching teaches itself in that way. And that's that's really why I wrote The Living Classroom, because this was happening in my classroom. I never talked about my psychedelic work to my students. I didn't bring it into the classroom. I built a firewall between my spiritual practice and my teaching work. But I found that the deeper I went into the consciousness of the universe in my spiritual practice, the more it began to activate students in my classroom, the more there was an unconscious transmission, an activation taking place, which I had to learn how to manage in order to keep everything safe for everybody in the classroom. So I've learned how that works. And I've learned that when you throw a stone into the lake, it naturally ripples out entirely. And so everybody, when we do deep practice, naturally people around us are going to be touched and are going to be influenced. So I know that when people's questions take me to reflect upon life in a way, which is informed by my experiences There is a gathering and a reinforcing that takes place between their psyches and my psyche, and together we become more. And there is a transmission that sometimes happens and a healing that sometimes happens that no one is in control of, and yet it seems to be the work. Now, what's happened since the book has come out, COVID has shut down personal contact of that sort, So I've been in a period of incubation and we're having lots of Zoom meetings and basically I've been incubating and trying to see where this is going, see where it wants to go. I'm about to begin a seven-week online course on the book, which will give us another opportunity to push this a little bit farther. How much can we actually give this transmission online? I would rather be doing it in person But right now, it's an online world.
1: Uh, Well, from where I'm sitting, it feels like it works pretty well.
0: (laughs) And Chris, what's the name of the course so listeners can find it? Well, it actually hasn't
2: been given a name yet. Um, This Uh is on the Shift Network. The Shift Mm -hmm. Network is producing it. It's going to be on LSD in the mind of the universe. But we haven't settled on a name. It may be called Diamonds from Heaven. It may be called a spiritual journey into the mind and heart of the universe, but it'll be on Shift Network starting the middle of November, and it starts November 30th.
1: And Chris, do you find that people are responding, such as it is, given the times that we live in? Are How's it going? Are the books selling? Are your people going, oh, my God, have you met any fellow travelers who maybe had similar experiences and note i mean from my experiences what you're saying really corresponds and deepens and fills out what
2: i've learned in my own journey in my own life so how's it going it's going just as you say there's nothing unique about my experiences it's just it's in a group of all of our collective experiences that pushes the boundaries in certain ways But I've had many people write me and say, you've clarified what my experience has been. Here's what I've experienced around this topic. And I've had many people write and say, I've never touched psychedelics in my life, but I've had many experiences that are completely in alignment with your experiences. Let me explain to you my experience. And it's so it's clearly, this is a large pattern that's coming up within the collective psyche as a whole. And it's been a joy, it's a joy to share, and then to enter into conversation with other journeyers. What's important is not any one person's experience, clearly. What's important is the, in this case, the psychedelic experiences or the psychedelic and spiritual experiences of the entire human family. When we put all of our experiences on the table, then we can sort out which ones are not essential or which ones are idiosyncratic and find the ones that are universal and are more epistemologically valuable. And to do that, we have to put all of our experiences on the table. So for me, I'm simply putting my experiences on the table in dialogue with other people as we all put our experiences on the table, and then we begin a conversation of those experiences, and I think we're still in the early stages. I mean, I think the book you edited, Roger, of the early psychedelic elders, you know, that work was putting a, a certain generation's insights on the table. And I think it's beginning again. The tricky part right now for me, and as people absorb my work, is the focus of the psychedelic renaissance is psychedelic therapy. And that's exactly where it should be. Healing the human psyche, careful control studies, lots of brain wave maps, you know, and all that stuff. Very, very careful control studies. And to a certain degree, my work rocks that boat because it doesn't follow that protocol. It uses extreme doses, high doses. It's using a very, very powerful chemical which doesn't lend itself to healing as much as well as MDMA or as psilocybin. And so there's a certain tension, I think, between the therapeutic focus of the present, very important work being done and my work. And yet there is a huge underground psychedelic community, which is not waited for a scientific validation. Yeah. And this community, I think, is been having a conversation among itself for many, many years. And I think my work is being received very well in that community.
0: Yes. And you spoke of, you know, you're still exploring the next question. You spoke of a period of some years, I think 20 years of assimilating these experiences. So, it sounds like the process of integration has been very long and has had its own challenges. And perhaps that's not a topic that's given enough attention in spiritual circles. There's a lot of focus on doing the practices and opening to particular states of consciousness and insights, but, mm. but not so much perhaps on the very essential work of integration, which is an assimilation of the experiences a reflection on them or recognizing their implications, dialoguing about them in community, anything which allows us to come to a broader understanding of their implications and possibilities and their implications for how now shall we live?
2: Yes, yes. There is a book that's just been published called Psychedelics and Psychotherapy, that really focuses on this issue of integration. I have an article in it, very important. I think that we're getting past the stage where the excitement over being able to break through to these dimensions of consciousness is kind of calming down. And we're beginning to realize that the real issue is what do we do with these experiences? How can we hold them? How do we integrate them? How do we integrate them individually in small community? And how do we integrate them intellectually so that we shift the paradigm of the reality that we're living within? And of course, psychedelic experiences support the paradigm of a living universe, that the universe is not dead matter, but the entire universe is alive. It supports the paradigm of an intelligence, orders and orders and orders of intelligence that lie behind and within physical existence. So there's so many levels to it. And I would offer my own experiences of what not to do. I mean, I'm I'm deadly serious when I say, I think I pushed myself harder than was wise. The chapter that was the hardest chapter in the book to write was the last chapter coming off the mountain, where I reflect upon... The years after I stopped my sessions took me a year just to write that chapter. I thought I paid a lot of attention to integration throughout my work. I I wrote all my sessions down. I I did a lot of spiritual practice throughout. And even though I couldn't teach this stuff, I, I had it in conversation with my partner at the time. And I paid a lot of attention to individual integration. I wrote The Living Classroom to reflect, tell the story of how I took care of my students who were being touched by the work. So social integration. So I thought that when I stopped these sessions, I would be able to step away and I would live with the bounty of the extraordinary gifts that I had been given and the most important of which emerged in the last five years of the work we haven't talked about yet, but the diamond luminosity sessions that those particular immersions into Dharmakaya, the clear light of absolute reality. But what I found was that in the years following, in five or six years following my sessions, when I stopped, I had entered what I called the deep sadness. It was a period of withdrawal into a loneliness, from not being able to return to such ecstatic experiences of being dissolved into light, literally just into light. I knew that I needed to stop. I knew it was important for me to stop. I had to spend years absorbing what I had, but there was such an unfulfilled longing to return to those dimensions of reality that I found, I reached a point where I realized I was just waiting to die. I was taking care of my children. I was taking care of my students. I was not suicidal. I was living a balanced life. But in my heart, I was just waiting to die. With more time, I realized something's wrong here. This is not the way this work is supposed to end. This is, I made a mistake. Somewhere along the way, I made a mistake. And I began to wonder, is it possible to have too much God? but I knew the entire physical universe was God. I knew that the divine is everything that exists. So it's not a matter of having too much God because I knew God was, I was living inside God. So what was the mistake? And eventually I came to to see that the mistake was not too much divine of the divine, but it was too much transcendence. There is a balancing act between transcending time and space and being embodied inside time and space. And there are truths in each of these realities. And I had plunged myself so deeply beyond time and space so many times into such intimacy with that which supports time and space that I lost my bearings, I lost my foothold inside time and space. So I made an absolute decision to ground myself inside time and space, and to let what I had experienced in these subtle states of consciousness, to let it work its way into me. I had to literally not alter my consciousness so that these states of awareness could enter into my physical being, whereas previously it had entered into my altered being if it was ever going to enter into my physical body, I had to sit still and let it come to me. Because as you know, in these states, nothing in reality changes. We don't do anything. We simply wake up to something that's always been there. It's always been there. And I had reached a point where I simply had to sort of be patient and let this transformation take place. And so, in a sense, on the one hand, there's nothing more for me to do. And on another hand, yeah, there's something more for me to do. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tune in for the next episode of the dialogue with Chris Bache as he continues his exploration of the farther reaches of human consciousness.
1: Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice thank you for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the deep transformation podcast and we greatly appreciate your comments suggestions and questions thank you for all you are and all you do from john roger and the deep transformation team